0: Here's where you have to know how to drop your golf ball. Sure speeds up play when you have those drop areas. Fowler has dropped the ball twice. The Shambo is going to get a free drop. Something bad has happened if
1: we end up here. This is the drop zone.
0: All right, folks. Happy Sunday evening. Happy U.S. Open conclusion. I'm sitting in the uh, front seat of a Kia Soul rental car. Alongside my trusty companion, Luke Curtinine who has joined me all week uh, in Brookline. Of course, we're missing Sean Zock across the pond, um, but we're happy to be joined by our resident Brit. Luke, thanks for being here.
1: Of course, thanks. in the official vehicle of, of uh, Golf.com and Golf Magazine, the Kia Soul. So yeah, we miss Sean, but um, yeah, we're still sort of riding high after a good US Open Sunday.
0: Matthew Fitzpatrick had that dog in him officially Luke. I mean, he closed with what 68 today, um, shut the door. The tournaments, uh, result was in question basically all day. Uh, there was a bunch of flipping and flopping. I mean, other than John Rahm kind of disappearing from contention, we saw a lot of the best major championship competitors in the world playing like it. So, I mean, what is satisfying test? I guess, first of all, the country club rose to the occasion. Uh, man, we needed it, right? In the world of golf, we needed a good week like this. I guess I'm just listing off reasons why today was a success, but that is the the main emotion I feel leaving the course today. What, do you, what about you?
1: It's funny because I feel like in some ways a winner like Matt Fitzpatrick, and this is in no way a disrespect to him, would probably be seen as a slightly underwhelming one, right? Like a golfer who can't necessarily transcend the sport or, you know, capture this mainstream attention. But I think what we got in Matt Fitzpatrick winning at the country club was like a really golfy major, you know? Not a guy who's going to reinvent the way sp- the sport is perceived or the way the sport's being played. Um, nothing revolutionary on that front. It's just a good sort of classic golfer, golfy golfer type at an old country club with tons of history with a very golfy storyline. Him being the only player since Jack Nicklaus to win a major at a course where he also won a US amateur. So there's all sorts of that stuff going on. and I thought it was, uh, it it definitely sort of hit the sweet spot for golf nerds out there.
0: Yeah, it's really funny because it it really thread this interesting needle this week, I felt like, um, I mean, I don't like taking the side of golf's traditionalism or, you know, it's, it's stodginess, even the fact that, you know, we're celebrating that this tournament happened at a, a you know, waspy old money country club, one of the original country clubs that doesn't really do much for me, but I felt like we were reminded today what actually matters when it comes to professional golf. Like, why these guys started playing in the first place was to play in tournaments like today's. And so, there is a part of that history and that legacy that comes across, even with, like you said, a nod to Fitzpatrick winning at the same venue where he won the U.S. Amateur. Like those things matter because they have mattered over time. This year's US Open matters because last year's mattered and the year before and the decade before and the decades before that. Like there is a level of context and history that is important here. And it's funny because that we usually take that for granted because we don't usually have a a rival tour breathing down the necks of, you know, some of the top competitors in whatever tournament we're watching. So. I guess I appreciated all of that more this week and the fan reception and the the venue and the atmosphere coming down the stretch all just, it felt it felt a little bit more special because of
1: that, I guess. Absolutely. And you know, what's funny about whether you're talking about live or whether you'll talk about any number of other sort of grow the game initiatives that have come along over the past few years is that they're always sort of perceived by these marketing types who create them that in order for golf to be mainstream and popular and transcendent, it needs to become less of what it inherently is. Uh, they talk about making golf louder, making golf faster, making golf shorter, quicker, stupider. Um, and it's just, it, it's been this constant theme with all this live stuff, obviously. But I think what we saw today was golf sort of leaning into a bit of the good stuff that it is. It's not saying that it was perfect, but, you know, golf is a game of tradition, right? It is a game that, like, really cherishes its history. That doesn't mean it can't innovate along the way, but it does mean that we shouldn't, like, pretend it's something it's not. And to me, I know that's very vague and flowery, but I do think that we saw sort of strands of this going back to the country club, which really did turn in, turn this event into a you know popular, interesting, nuanced version of what it is. And it was such a welcome relief when you compare that to how the week started and all the noise and and just messy buzz that sort of surrounded this event.
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, it is golf. Like we don't have to shy away from that. We don't have to pretend it's something else. But Let's get specific. Let's talk about Matthew Fitzpatrick because that, I think, was one of the most fitting parts of his victory was how this is not a guy who has cut corners. Um, this is a guy who has tracked every single shot that he's hit since he was, what, 15 years old? So, you know, nearly half his life ago, he just started writing down, building a database of every single iron shot he hit, like where it landed, uh, the proximity to his target. Um where he intended it to end up, where it did, et cetera, et cetera, to plot out like his tendencies, his misses, like just an incredibly disciplined, meticulous guy. Um, not only that, he decided a couple of years ago, after actually lobbing some criticism Bryson DeChambeau's way, that he was going to take some version of the Bryson approach. And he did so um, carefully and and responsibly and sustainably and, Gained a whole bunch of speed, like a crazy amount of speed. I I don't know. We've definitely seen it, but we saw it extra this week for some reason. Like he was pounding it past Will Zalatoris. He played with Dustin Johnson the other day and was hitting it past him. And, you know, I'm not sure that driving distance was necessarily the specific reason that he won this week. But I think that having additional speed, having more in the tank is directly correlated to being able to contend in this U.S. Open, right, Luke? Absolutely. Um, I think
1: the way Matt Fitzpatrick views distance is that it just makes the game easier, right? Um, he hasn't actually like revolutionized his game in the way in which he's playing it. Um, what he's just doing is tacked on I think he said four extra yards with each iron and more more speed off the tee and he's gone from a fade to a draw which has sort of squeezed out more distance there too but he's still playing golf the same way you know I asked him about this he said he's still just plodding from spot to spot to spot he's still really hyper focusing on accuracy that was a huge reason why he keeps statistics like he does he'll pick a spot he'll hit his shot and then he'll see how far offline he hit it it's very much an accuracy first position a to position b approach and so i do think that that's like at the core of how he plays the game uh you know what i guess in a nutshell is the reason why i think other golfers should care and the reason i care and like rooting for fitzpatrick so much is that he's the golfer Quite frankly, like I want to be the next time I go play golf, right? He's not a guy who's trying to blow up everything and put it back together in some new way. He's not trying to pretend like he's something he's not. What he's trying to do is just sharpen his own game. He's trying to get a little bit better incrementally at what he does. Um, And he's not trying to blow it all up along the way. And I think that was one of the mistakes. Uh, Bryson, for instance, made after he won his US Open, he sort of declared that I'm going to change the game. And a lot of people understandably got robbed wrong by that. Matt Fitzpatrick is like taking a pretty radical, or not radical, but quite a different approach to the way he manages his own game. But he's not going out there declaring that I'm going to change the way people think about golf. So Really, he's kind of like an unproblematic Bryson in this way. He just sort of gets along with his with his quirky approach and uh, wins a U.S. Open because of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's all right. I think you're spot on. I mean, I think we have seen a self-built, you know, excellent golfer. I think we've he's like his own experiment in the same way that Bryson is. But Bryson is already built like a farmhand. You know, like Bryson has all this natural natural strength. Fitz, you know, people were talking about this and, and, and kind of joking about how it's this skinny kid with Skechers shoes and braces and, you know, a, a goofy wide grin. And here he is turning into a stud, hitting it past all these guys that we praise for being such incredible athletes. Like, it, it's pretty funny how he seems to have done that from scratch and with strategy, etc. Um So. Yeah, I I just think it's hugely hugely impressive. I think that uh, there's something special to the yeah to the the player that he's become, the guy he is, everything that it means for the game. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Fitz?
1: I think you can learn more from watching a guy like Matt Fitzpatrick play golf than a guy like you know Sam Burns or Will Zalatoris or some sort of new age athlete type because Matt Fitzpatrick isn't the guy with all these physical tools transcendent talent anything like that i mean he's a talented guy obviously but the reason why matt fitzpatrick won the u.s open today is because of he did the same things that you or i could do in order to get better at our game he was really disciplined in picking a plan and sticking with it he wasn't trying to blow everything up. As I was saying, he's trying to play his own game. Doesn't particularly care how something looks, if it helps. It's why he chips cross-handed and puts with a pin in? Because he thinks it'll help him. And when I asked him about that, do you ever get embarrassed about how something looked? He didn't even compute with him. He's like, N- no. You know, if I wanted to finish second my whole life, I would, I would care about how something looks, but it helps, why would I? And so these are all just really interesting and like good reminders just for the golfer at home right that who cares how something looks if it helps you know if, if you're disciplined if you stick with a plan and if you pick a plan and stick with it you'll get better because of it if you're smart about the way you work then you'll get better at golf and you'll get incrementally or you'll improve incrementally every single day to the point where you're playing the best golf of your life. And to me, that's a really inspiring, cool message that Matt Fitzpatrick represents.
0: Folks, I do want to take a second to tell you about Radmore Golf. That is the best apparel company in the game. I was wearing it all week long uh, at Brookline, getting a lot of comments, a lot of comments in our drop zone specific line. But what I want you to do is head to radmoregolf.com. That's R-A-D-M-O-R golf.com. Check out the hoodie selection. Check out the nice... Uh, band collar polo selection for this summertime. Freshen up your gear and use code Drop Zone at checkout for a ridiculous 25% off. That's RadmoreGolf.com. Check them out. All right, let's talk about the tournament at large, Luke. Um, the Country Club. I don't know if I've heard or you know been at a U.S. Open with less criticism. Today got a little bit softer. Uh, there was some overnight rain. It was a little bit chilly, a little bit breezy, but definitely calmed down as the day went on. So we saw some birdies down the stretch. We saw some fireworks. Um, The winning score, of course, six under par, which is kind of in that sweet spot where it's gettable. A significant number of guys still under par, but also mostly guys like ejecting and disappearing from the leaderboard. Do you think the setup was too difficult, too easy, just where you want it? Um, What's your what's your thought there?
1: I think this is where the USGA wants it, sort of in this four five, six under range. Personally I thought it was a touch too easy. And I think the reason why it played that way is because they just made an error on the first day setting it up. They set it up too easy on the Thursday. Um they didn't roll the greens, they didn't double cut the greens. What they wanted to do was allow it to play a little easier on thursday and try to figure out what this weather was going to do on friday because at the start of the week everybody was saying uh rain's going to come in it's going to be really bad maybe a delay so they were kind of hedging their bets a bit And what we ended up seeing really is that all the scoring was done on the first day Mm. in the sense that you know the i I think the round one lead was five under four four under excuse me and the final and the 72 hole lead was six under, right? Like if that first day played a little tougher and they allowed it to just sort of gradually proceed on the slightly more difficult trajectory, I think we would have ended up more in the two, three under range. So I would have liked to see that. Um, yeah, I would like to see that. So I guess they, they set it up too easy for my liking.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, Saturday was so much fun, like watching guys uh, scramble around and just try to hang in the tournament. Like the fact that Joel Damon made 10 pars in a row to to finish his Saturday and doing so brought him back into contention. Like that sort of stuff is very cool. Um, watching them navigate wind and cold, Luke, like, I, you know, I'm obsessed with talking about weather when, when we're at tournaments, because I think it just sets the tone for the entire day, the entire competition. And you know that's probably that probably was completely the case this weekend. Sunday was just a little bit calmer, a little bit friendlier. The scores reflected it. Uh Hideki shot 5 under. That was the round of the tournament. Um you know, there were a couple rounds of 3 and 4 under. That's just fine. I think it was all good. Uh I would I would love to see the players slightly more agitated. Um we're getting laughed at right now in the media parking lot by Golf Channel's Ryan Lavner. Who's picking up his rental Jeep for the week? Uh, but look, this is the commitment you need to podcasting. Um, I mean, Luke, Matthew Fitzpatrick, this is not, this is like, this is not what you think of when you think of your beefy boy, Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, U.S. Open champion. Big time shout out to Matt Fitzpatrick. Uh, who else were you particularly impressed with this week? It feels like this was kind of the who's who of you know, major championship dogs. Like, this is kind of the crew. Scotty Scheffler and Will Zalatoris, one shot back. Rory McIlroy, Colin Morikawa. Like, the gang was all here, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It definitely had this new wave of, of sort of tour players, who the, the guys who are really setting about establishing themselves as the new crop of players. They really showed up this week. Um, you know, Scheffler and Zalatoris being the the two who finished in second. Um, Morikawa, obviously, in fifth. Let's do another moment on the course here. Um,
0: It was really fun to get a chance to walk around and explore the property a bunch early on in the week, and then get to see how the players actually tackled it in real time. There was an interesting flow to things um, where the wind direction and pin locations pretty radically changed which holes were playing uh, in what way, but I don't know. I mean, there was sort of a difficult stretch coming out of the gates. Um, One through four definitely gave some golfers fits uh, before you got a couple holes where they could, you know, five, six, seven, eight, you could make a few more birdies. And there was another tough stretch uh, and then some birdies coming home. Luke, what was your favorite spectating area out there?
1: Man, I thought the scene on 18 was awesome. I was walking... In Rory's group as he made his way up it, and because it's such an old school course oh, yeah. and therefore very like narrow, everything's yeah. quite close together, which you only get in a course like at a course like the Country Club. The place really started echoing, had this like open championship vibe in the sense that like there's just a few too many people packed a little too close together, um, which is really fun in these instances because it just like creates this like really compressed sound so mm-hmm. i thought that was just an awesome view and then the boston fans really like brought the heat um like i said i just think the usj missed the trick a little bit in just not in not leaning into like firming this place up a little mm-hmm. bit letting it play a little harder you know there are areas of the rough that like really weren't like that bad like the the places i guess ultimately where players hit it were quite juicy but you know they, they just needed to like lean into it a bit more. Um, that's when I thought we saw the best goal, or the most fun golf, when uh, we were watching these guys really hack and grind their way through, and the wind was up too, which is just this crazy hard variable for people. So yeah, you know, overall a good week. But I thought the Country Club, regardless of how it's set up, did sort of show its colours well.
0: I loved watching the short par three eleventh. Um, I can't. I don't know if that ended up playing over par for the week. Maybe just under par, but. I believe it played over par for the final round when it was playing at just over a hundred yards and significantly downhill. Seeing these guys tackle different types of shots and seeing the good ones perform really well and, 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 you know, rise to the occasion is just such a good reminder that they play in domes so often, like really warm weather, sunny, perfect days um, with you know relatively gettable pins and it's just incredible how difficult golf makes the the best golfers rise to the top like Matthew Fitzpatrick and Will Zalatoris good example um i think our friend Randy was was talking about this but two guys that had never won on the PGA tour and it came down to those two guys today and it was not at all surprising that it came down to those two guys because they were in the mix of the PGA championship and they seem to get into the mix at a whole bunch of major championship type tests. So there's something that's right happening here that maybe we're missing week in and week out on the PGA tour. Um, maybe it's an indictment of that, but it's also a credit to these guys and to, you know, John Rahm and even to Rory McIlroy, who, man, I thought maybe with the softer conditions today, Was going to make a charge. He was just one step forward, one step back, all the way around. Um, I mean, you watched a bunch of Rory, Luke. We walked with him the last few holes and caught some of that magic with birdies at 14 and 15 and a great par save at 16, stuffed it in on 17, and you thought maybe, um, but came up just short. Maybe that's Rory in in a nutshell these days.
1: Honestly, like, I know Rory scored well, but I actually thought his score was a little, it was actually a little better than the way he played. Um, the reason why he was sort of lurking was because he was just putting just out of his mind. He was making everything, whether it was for par or bogey or birdie. So he kept dropping these and they were genuinely really impressive I mean he putted well enough to win but I think this week really exposed Rory with his trousers down a bit when it comes to playing in the wind I actually think he's genuinely like not that good a wind player sadly he was making some weird decisions I mean it's probably because he has such a high spin you know he hits golf balls such high spin so it's actually a little trickier it's like sort of the the opposing side of the sword when it comes to you know generating that much speed but either way he was just clearly struggling I mean like we saw him on the the final par three on the back nine today and really needed to sort of get after this pin. And he just completely misjudged the wind and ended up short. Um, I watched him on the the third hole today. Middle of the fairway, sort of a go-ahead, 168 yards he had. From eight yards further back, Matt Fitzpatrick stuck it to eight feet there. You know, it was not a very hard shot. It was sort of a birdie opportunity if you hit your drive in the right place. But what undid him was the wind. He just completely misjudged it, ended up short-sided, made bogey. Saw that the day before, too, on the 12th hole, wedge, middle of the fairway, misjudged it, ended up short, made bogey. This was sort of a common theme, and when his putter wasn't there to bail him out, he was just making bogeys. And uh, it, I, I think this is like a real area of focus that Rory needs to, needs to take a look at because it cost him a lot of shots this weekend.
0: Definitely one spot where, you know, we were right next to him was on the fifth hole. Uh, he just made such an unforced bogey on Sunday. I mean, he, w- he drove it left to the green. It's a drivable, uh, drivable par four. Rory was almost pin high on the left. He, it was going to be difficult to get it close. Um, but he, you know, the entire green from where he was sloped hard left to right. He hit this high flop shot that just landed like a little bit right of the flag, which was, I mean, it was just like unacceptable. Like you, you, you can't hit it there because from there you bring the false front into play. Sure enough, it kicked forward, kicked right, trickled all the way off the front of the green. And then from there he, he pulled out putter and hit it 12 feet past and, um, and then missed that. And it just felt like, man, that's such an unforced error. And you know, that, that's the Rory McIlroy experience. He makes some of the really hard stuff look easy. And then he makes some of the relatively easy stuff, look hard. So he, you know, he looks, he looks like a frustrating golfer to watch. And I mean, the Boston faithful, maybe just the faithful everywhere are, are so emotionally invested in Rory McElroy. It was Rory and it was Keegan who were the fan favorites, unquestionably going up 18. They each got their name chanted. Um, you know, maybe it's something about being from the Irish Island um, that the Boston fans can relate to. But it's also just, you know, Rory Rory always makes you think that he can do something transcendent. And recently he's been getting close to it, but then, as you say, backing off. And I think you have a point. I mean, he he must have hit, what, two greens in regulation on Saturday on the back nine and just made every single putt he looked at. Encouraging when it comes to the putter, but not necessarily a
1: step forward anywhere else. Yeah, I mean he hit six greens on Saturday. He was missing greens with wedges. He was struggling around the greens when he did miss them. He was just making so many different kinds of putts. So in that way it's encouraging that he could post a score not really or he posted he could post a score by scrambling, which is like an incredibly valuable trait for a guy who's not usually known for that. But I think this like wind issue is something that Uh, is 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 starting to or let me back up and say I think when you start thinking about the places where Rory McIlroy hasn't played well it's usually when the wind and the elements start gusting up a little bit we saw it at Augusta we saw it at the players we saw it at Bay Hill and now we saw it at the US Open again this is just clearly an area where Rory struggles um, in the wind and I think that if he needs to, if he's gonna, if he's going to win another major, which I believe he will, it's going to be in either calm conditions or once he gets a handle on this this issue. All
0: right, let's run through the rest of this leaderboard a little bit. Um, Hideki Matsuyama made a giant move. He was really never part of the conversation until the back nine on Sunday. He shot five under, the best round of the week. He made five birdies. He did not make a single bogey. Uh, going bogey free on that course is incredibly impressive. So uh, shout out to Hideki. Even if it was a backdoor top five, it was certainly a well-earned top five. Um, Colin Morikawa, a really, really bizarre week. I mean, his third round just undid him. He had one stretch where he, you know, made bogey at six and double at seven and then bogey at 12 and double at 13. And just played his way completely out of it from the final group shooting 77 and then somehow played his way basically all the way back into it on Sunday. So he finished T five alongside Rory. Um, There were a couple of little guys, Denny McCarthy and Adam Hadwin that hung in there. Uh, Then there's Keegan Bradley. Like what do you make of some of the other names on this leaderboard? Luke are these uh, impressive career changing results for any of these guys are these Wikipedia look good results? Uh, like who impressed you?
1: Yeah, I, d- I didn't think there was anything revolutionary in the sense of like which names popped up there. I mean, I'm quite happy Hideki Matsuyama snuck into fifth because I had a top five bet which cashed because of it. There was a sole bet that cashed this weekend. Um, you know, I'm, I, I said at the start of the week I was really high on the big guys, the BBI index, yeah, the B- Beefy Boy index, and uh, you know M- Matsuyama certainly f- fills that role um fitzpatrick has been trending up in the bbi from a low floor that's that's just a fact of the bbi but you know outside of that it was actually like a few of the, a few of the, the skinnier boys who, who did quite well denny mccarthy being the classic example like a good putter keeps it in the fairway type um your guy joel damon gets to cash a big paycheck i mean what was the vibe in, in damon world you were sort of super close to that throughout the week
0: yeah, it's funny. I got lucky to be following around Mito Pereira all PGA Championship week, and then he was so close to winning. Uh, this week, spent a bunch of time with Joel Damon and his caddy Gino. Uh, they were the 36-hole co-leaders. It never quite felt likely that they were going to actually win the tournament, but look, they hung in there. I mean, and Joel was in inside the top five for most of the day. Um, shot two over on the back nine which was the easier side so that took him from like t4 to t10 in the end I mean god he missed it he missed a three-footer on 18 for birdie that would have I think cost him a um, hundred thousand so dollars I was talking to Gino uh, about it right afterwards and Gino's building a new house he was like I could see it right there you know, my new floors are about $9,000, and that pretty much would have just covered it right there. That birdie putt. I mean, he was saying it like good naturedly, of course, and, and he's going to have a very nice payday. But um, it's funny the margins at that point. He played just well enough, though, to guarantee a spot in next year's U.S. Open, clung to a tie for 10th, and uh, everyone in the top 10 automatically qualifies for next year's U.S. Open. So that was pretty big for Joel. Um Xander and Cantley down there in T14 never really factored, Luke, but definitely two guys we had our eyes on. The who was um who was our low live man? Was that Dustin Johnson in the end? I th- I think Dustin Johnson at T24. He seemed like a guy that could potentially have the firepower to make some sort of charge on Sunday. Uh I mean, a couple beefy boys didn't really show up for you on Sunday. One was John Rahm, who strangely just kind of vanished, only made one birdie. Uh, seemed like through three rounds, he was arguably playing the best golf of anyone in the field. And then Sam Burns, who was at 200 to start the day, shot five over 40 on the back nine, doubled 13. Uh, we stumbled on his ball in the woods left of the 15th. He got out of there with just a bogey. But um, I guess. I mean, is there anything unexpected about that? Or that's just sort of how weekend golf goes?
1: Yeah, you know, it was it was weird to see John Rahm just completely implode. Um, I, I really didn't see it coming, right? I mean, he was playing so well on Saturday, and then he doubled 18. And then everybody, the vibe was still very much like, oh, John Rahm's gonna win this. And then he just sort of vanished there um, relatively quickly on Sunday. Um, you know, I do think there's a few, there there was a few beefcakes who sort of, um, who, who did some stuff, Gary Woodland, notching a top 10, Seamus Power, notching a T12, Oh, sneaky Mark Leishman getting into t fourteen. That's interesting. But you know, like there was a it was a good mix of guys. But yeah, I didn't think um, outside of the very top of the leaderboard. Um, you know, we saw Matt, Matt Fitzpatrick get his major. He said he his number was six. That was the number of majors he's aiming for, which is alarming as a diehard Nick Faldo fan that he's trying to he's trying to become the new 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 uh, most majors won by an Englishman. Um, and then outside of that, I don't know Will Zalatoris. Just give me Sergio Garcia vibes there. Uh, Good ball striker, bad putter type, geez. you know, someone who's going to win his major, but maybe not as many as we might thought. But yeah, those, those are sort of my storylines going into the next major.
0: Somehow, Luke, we've made it this far without really talking about the the specter of doom hanging over this entire week. And that has been Live, and the sense that, look, yeah, now we've got the Live guys back together with the PGA Tour loyalists um for a, a major championship clash but now some more guys are going to start to defect i mean there was just this weird sense this afternoon of like oh right now it's going to keep happening like dustin johnson finished his round and and he skipped media and and was in the car on the way off property before we knew it bryson finished his round and actually went to the driving range um prepping theoretically for his next round, which is going to be at Pumpkin Ridge in Oregon at the next Live event. Uh, Abraham Answer was announced on a Mexican TV broadcast as committed to leaving for Live. So it was just hanging in the air um, all week long. And actually having such a good tournament was just what the PGA Tour needed, even though obviously the USGA runs this event, not the PGA Tour but I guess it still felt like a win
1: for status quo golf. Is that right? I thought it was a short term win for status quo golf. Um, You know, everybody is just so sick of talking about this, this silly season of just players, middling players making the trip over to live and oh, who's going to be next. And then getting trotted up in a press conference and giving non answers to sort of fair questions and then social media going nuts about it. I mean, it's, so not fun uh, to not be talking about the golf element of this and the best case scenario for this live tour is that for the time being it's just going to divide fields on the few weeks in which they do have events um you know the initial sort of morbid curiosity about this is going to die down from the mainstream so it's just going to be one of these events that operates in the background so we're gonna have two golf events in one week that just kind of both don't take center stage and that's just going to be the spot in which it occupies this week i think golf is going to be better off when it's actually talking about the golf long term and not all this nonsense around it
0: (laughs) and i guess that's where we arrived At the end of this weekend, like none of the focus on Sunday was actually about even if it is the bigger picture, the fact that we could focus happily on the smaller picture stuff uh, was a relief. I mean, it's the reason we're all involved in this is so that, you know, we can focus on the golf. The reason that fans are cheering Phil Mickelson and by and large, I would say ignoring most of this stuff is because. That's what's more fun, and that's what's easier to do. It's like you know, why would you worry about all this stuff if you don't necessarily have to? Uh, I was definitely hearing some whispers that the the live stuff and the Saudi stuff is a little bit trickier than advertised. I mean, I think that there are um, issues involving players that sign with Live then being strongly encouraged uh, or required to play some other Asian tour events that the money, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly how these contracts work and that some players that have signed on are already having a little bit of buyer's remorse because it's not, you know, it's not totally clear that they're (laughs) psyched about what it is that they signed on for. I mean, the PGA Tour is still pretty sweet. Ooh, there's a fox in front of us running across the parking lot into the woods. That's pretty cool. Um, so, Luke, it's a it's a thorny, complex time on Tuesday. Jay Monahan is calling a players' meeting uh, at the Travelers Championship, where he's going to announce uh, announce some things, uh, presumably suspension related, and uh, then the players are going to meet. And there are more players that are going to leave. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but I
1: mean. Are you are you just bored of all of this at this point? Do you care about what the next step is? Hopelessly, painfully bored by all of this. I mean, I did not get into golf writing to talk about macro geopolitical issues. But one thing I will say is that I think, you know, tour players are an independent lot, sort of surrounded by people that they employ. So they live in this environment in which anything they think is is important and and sort of approved by those around them so what they will often find themselves is that the smallest grievance they have with the tour then sort of spirals into this bigger thing which leads them down a path of well maybe i will go to live maybe it will be better but you know it's all been sounding a bit too good to be true and i think what we'll start hearing in the coming weeks and months is details come out that um the players who signed up for this won't be able to just ditch or get out of i mean players for instance love skipping a press conference when they don't play well right they love being able to pick their own schedule and do certain things and you know quibble publicly about the course setup and the rules officials and this and that are you telling me that if you're on guaranteed money from Saudi Arabia that you're going to be able to speak out freely about you know something you disagree with about the tour or some media obligation you have to go to or you know sure the draft party looked fun for players last time around but you're telling me draft party number 12 is going to be just as fun I mean I think there's going to be all sorts of different little things where pros are going to start getting persnickety but instead of simply not being able to play they're going to have to deal with the fact that they're now effectively an employee
0: yeah i think that's the great irony here this is touted as golf's free agency as like you know the free market at work as golfers being able to you know pick and choose and do whatever they want to do there are going to be some unintended consequences there are going to be players that didn't realize what it is they had gotten themselves into uh some agents seem really on different plans and pages than others I think the same is true with players. But to your point, we've talked enough about this. We're here to celebrate the U.S. Open. Um, Our recording device is about to die here. You've got about two hours home to drive, probably more. Uh, So give me one enduring memory from this week's U.S. Open.
1: I think my enduring memory of this U.S. Open was just getting a really up-close look at the country club. Because... You know, it really lives large in the memory for me. I mean, 1999 was like a was basically the year that helped me fall in love with golf. Right? It was the year where Sergio took on Tiger Woods and hit that shot off the tree, and that was really exciting. And then the Ryder Cup happened, um, which was a really dramatic Ryder Cup. Even though my team obviously was on the wrong side of America's comeback, it was thrilling in that way. And that part from Justin Leonard and actually being able to go take a look at this place for the first time, see these greens, see the history. It was, it was something really special about it. And it just made me appreciate that the best US Opens are the most Americana US Open. I really
0: like that. And that transitions nicely to mine, which is just the fact that, look, this is the first Massachusetts men's major championship of my lifetime. The last one was at the country club in 1988. I grew up in Massachusetts, um, was born in 91. So to come down here and and see it all play out, I mean, I've had a bunch of cousins in the crowd, not quite as many as Keegan Bradley, maybe, but watching him come up the 18th hole, as he said, have him really feel like a Boston sports athlete when that is how he has so closely identified. uh, That was just awesome. And and I guess from my own perspective, then being able to be a part of the Boston sports media scene for just a little bit was pretty cool. So having such a great sports town host such a big time event and have it so obviously mean things to all its competitors, to everyone that was in contention. I think that's going to be my enduring takeaway. We were reminded why this all matters this week. And uh, it's hard to put a price on that. Luke, it's hard to put a price on that, and it's also impossible to put a price on you, our dear listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Connor Federico for editing this late night in Boston. We will see you next week.